0: Well, welcome this morning, and it's uh, great we can be here and um, listen and learn from the Word of God together. You know, my, um, my topic today is one where um, I'm going to use uh, an illustration. <laughs> so my topic today is uh, cast the first stone, and I think your minds have already jumped to it. It's a passage found in uh, John chapter 8. Where uh, a lady who is uh, referred to as the adulterous woman is dragged before Jesus by a bunch of Pharisees, and uh, they're demanding that the law of Moses commands that such women be stoned to death. Now, often when we think about uh, you know uh, people being stoned, we think in terms of um, I think pebbles, perhaps large pebbles, but actually no, the rocks are more like this. They're brick-sized stones. And I'd really like to bring this to life today by handing you all a stone. Yep, seriously. <laughs> so I'm going to call on some of the guys. Actually, Hill, would you like to help me as well? i have already asked Solomon. He'd come forward, those I've asked, and um, we're going to hand out some stones. And while we're doing that, Mareka is very kindly offered to uh, read the Word of God.
1: John 8, 2 to 11. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Not one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin.
0: Thanks, Marika. Friends, to get into the, um, the moment, I want you to just grab your stone right now. I want you to try and picture this for a moment. Jesus, it seems he may be by himself, and he's just kind of seated there on the, on the sandy ground, perhaps having a moment of just quiet meditation or prayer, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes a, a bunch of people, some of them Pharisees, and they're dragging a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they demand that, uh, you know, you, the law of Moses commands that we stone such women. What do you say, Prophet. And they've got their stones raised. Raise your stone for a moment. They've all got their stones held high like they're about to pelt them, you know. And uh, they're, they're expecting him to say something, you know. And uh, But he doesn't. He doesn't say anything. He just starts riding in the sand. And uh, so they're, they're waiting. Arms are getting tired. And they press him again. You know, They want him to say something. Let's raise up your stones again. Well... <coughs> I wonder what he was writing in the sand. Was he just doodling? I want to put you up here, an interesting quote here. This is from um, one of the theologians, William Barclay. He says this, The normal Greek word for to write is graphion, but here the word used is katagraphion, which can mean to write down a record against someone. One of the meanings of kata is against. What's he saying? As he analyzes this passage, he's saying that um, really what Jesus is writing could well be the Scriptures, could well be a portion of the Ten Commandments, you name it. And so you can imagine there, hold up your stones again for a moment, as if you're about to pelt them, and instead of getting an answer from Jesus, just hold your stones up, feel that weight in your arm, but instead of getting an answer... Jesus does start saying things like, well, writing things on the ground like, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You see, the Pharisees were known as being money hungry. It says that in the Gospels. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then a moment later, um, Jesus writes, you know, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That gorgeous young wife that's a few doors down from one of the Pharisees. No, they're not committing adultery with her, but have they noticed her? Are they coveting her? Or Jesus may have written the ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. He's writing that in the sand. Hold your stones up again. Arms getting tired? The Pharisees' arms were too. (laughs) And, because, and why I say that one is we know the Pharisees lied about Jesus. They created stories about him. So we knew they were in the custom of lying. Well, what were they quoting? I wonder what the Pharisees were thinking of when they made that demand. The Old Testament commands, the law of Moses commands, we stone such women. What scripture were they thinking of at the time? Leviticus twenty ten says this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, Leviticus 2010, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So that's what they're thinking of. Uh, how were they to be put to death? Well, another passage actually gives us some direction. Deuteronomy 2023, 20, 22 23 says, if a man happens to meet In a town, a virgin pledged to be married, and he sleeps with her. You shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in the town and did not scream for help, and the man, because he violated another man's wife. You shall purge the evil from among you. Now you 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 read that term there. He's pledged to be married. It's like a form of engagement, only much more binding. Remember, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Pledge usually lasts for a year, but unlike our engagement, it was you, to break it, you had to be divorced. It was, it was actually a very serious pledge. And um, so, they're the passages the Pharisees probably had in mind. Um, in the eyes of the Jewish uh, rabbis at the time, they made this statement they would state every Jew must die before he will commit adultery, murder or idolatry, idolatry being the worship of other gods, murder, and they were the three big ones then. But was this really honouring the law of Moses that they were about? Well, first of all, if we want to be strict with what the, the law of Moses demanded, where was the guy? They dragged the woman there. Where's the guy? He got away or whatever, so they weren't being strict to the law in that regard. But secondly, they knew Jesus had the reputation of being compassionate. And as we read in the scriptures, actually, this was all about trying to get Jesus in trouble. Remember the verse? John 8, 5 through 6. It says this, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And this is the insight we're given. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So their motive is not primarily about the law of Moses at all, is it? It's about bringing Jesus unstuck, accusation against him. This is very challenging, though, for Jesus. Think about this for a moment. How can Jesus stay true to the law of God, yet also show the love of God? How do you do that in this situation? And like so often, Jesus does it so well. Look at this, verse 8, 7. Chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who without allowed sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Stood up for a moment, said those words, and then he's back writing perhaps some more commandments. And in the midst of him writing those commandments, what's happening for some of the gathered people, some of them religious leaders, some of them Pharisees? Their own hearts are being convicted by the fact that they are not perfect either. They may not have committed adultery, but perhaps they have committed some other things, such as the ones I suggested that Jesus might have been writing. And so in the midst of that conviction, what happens? Jesus hears the, the thud. Thud, 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 stones are just being dropped all around. The older ones first, we're told, and they walk away. Let's read the passage itself. Verse 9 through 11. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So she's standing there, probably half naked, very humiliated. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now, is this a situation where Jesus, is? his message is, well, actually adultery is not a big deal. Is that kind of the message from the passage? No, it's not, is it? I left out the end bit of the verse. Let's read it now. John eight eleven. Then neither do I condemn you Jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin what are we seeing here we're seeing that Jesus has the love and compassion of God but he's also true to the truth of God as well can I suggest this that this is a it's a classic example of where Jesus is bringing in the new covenant it, it operates differently to the Old Covenant. The new agreement between God and humanity, as we refer to it, the New Testament, all the same meaning. Agreement, covenant, testament, it's the same meaning. The new agreement between God and man. He's living it out. He's acting it out. Now remember, that's what it, when he introduced communion, which we'll be having later today, he actually used that phrase. Remember that about the New Covenant? Luke twenty-two nineteen. 19. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Now, one of the things that I need to touch on, because uh, some of you will have read this in your NIVs or RSVs or whatever version you use, and, and that is that this passage, right before it's written, will often have a clause. There's one in Mark's Gospel as well, the end of Mark's Gospel, and it will say something like this. It's what it says in my NIV Bible. It states... The earliest manuscripts and many other witnesses do not have John, 753 to 811. A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part. And often the passage itself will be in brackets or written in a different text, in italics or something like that. And why is that? Well, the earliest manuscripts don't have this passage in John. So what do you do with that? Um, well, before we go any further, let's get to the bottom of this. Uh, Let me quote, first of all, from the Tyndale Bible Commentaries. Probably a lot of pastors, if they're in the habit of buying commentaries, probably the most popular series of commentaries is the Tyndale Commentaries, and they'll have a full set of these over a couple of shelves in their library. The Tyndale Commentary on John's Gospel says this, written by John Tasker. He says, scholars are agreed that this section did not originally form part of St. John's Gospel, though it records a genuine incident in the life of Jesus. Now, William Barclay, who I quoted earlier, you'll see he says something very similar, an expert in the the culture of the New Testament times. He says this, look at William Barclay's close quote, in spite of the fact the early manuscripts do not include it, we need not doubt that this is a real story about Jesus. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn this is an actual account. This is a real thing. So it's not like this is a manufactured story, a made-up story. The scholars, the evangelical scholars agree this is a real thing. This definitely took place in Jesus' life. Should it be in John's Gospel? That's debated, but it's a real account. Um, There are other opinions out there. I'm going to quote to you from Emperor Augustine. He states that this story was removed from the text of the Gospel because some were of slight faith and to avoid scandal. He was emperor from 306 to 337 AD. Uh, he was a committed Christian as well. Most scholars don't think he was right. They don't think it was deliberately removed by the early scribes as they texted it out. Um, the interesting thing is the same um, uh, century in 382, uh, a, a intelligent chap called jerome great scholar he was commissioned to put together the latin vulgate bible Uh, the new testament had already been translated into latin but he did the whole bible and he didn't hesitate to put that passage in and put it exactly where it is today and it's kind of been in that position um pretty much since those times how do we conclude this well i would conclude it like this Even if it wasn't God's intention to include this account in the canon of Scripture, it certainly was God's intention to preserve this account for us to learn from today. Let me say that again. Even if it wasn't God's intention to include this account in the canon of Scripture, it certainly was God's intention to preserve this account for us to learn from today. Got the idea? Genuine accounts? Uh, God clearly has preserved it. He wants us to learn from it. Should it be in John's Gospel? Should it be in the canon of Scripture? That's debatable. But what's not debatable is God's preserved it. Therefore, we can certainly learn from it. <clears throat> As I've said, it's a great purpose, I think, within the passage is to demonstrate the new covenant in action. And the Apostle Paul, it's not just Jesus himself, but the Apostle Paul takes that concept and brings it into the early church. He writes this to the Corinthians, 11.23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Notice that. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, let me make the point, and we'll be meditating on that passage as we move into communion a little later, but let me make the point that I believe that Christians always get into trouble when they're trying to live under both the old covenant and the new covenant at the same time it doesn't work the crusades by the way are really an example of this you know the historic crusades you know we're not we're not to take up arms to defend or promote faith in Jesus Christ we live under the new covenant completely inappropriate if there's any time to take up arms it'd be when Jesus is about to be arrested isn't it And Peter does. He grabs a sword and he has a whack at the high priest's servant's head. He's got a helmet on. Deflects off the helmet probably and slices off his ear. But what does Jesus do? He tells Peter to put down the the sword and he heals the guy there and then. We're living under the new covenant. Let me make this statement, friends. We are to learn from the old covenant but live under the new covenant. That's a great phrase to remember. We're to learn from the Old Covenant but live under the New Covenant. <clears throat> Let me illustrate this perhaps with um, the life of someone from church history. I'd like to tell you the story of John Huss, as uh, English speakers pronounce it. The Bohemians of his time would have pronounced it Jan Hus. Uh So this, um, this man was born around about 1369. And died about 1415. So, being Bohemian, that's the Czech Republic. He grew up as a peasant. Uh, but his, his parents actually did quite well. They were farmers, and so they weren't in any sense uh, poor in the sense they were starving. But peasants, that's what they were referred to as. Young Jan had a, a, a real mental aptitude. I mean, he was a clever young lad they could see he was a bright boy and they wanted to do what they could to further his education um, literature was extremely expensive at that time but there were libraries and they tried to do everything they could to help him well the day came where the university of prague was accepting students who was now of age now they accept it was mostly wealthy and royalty that got to go to the university but they accepted a few peasants every year they had to be bright well Jan got in. Now, his parents couldn't afford to pay for him, you know, so it, it meant that he had to kind of earn his way. And he earned his way by scribing. So he would write documents, mostly books. Books were very expensive at that time. And so he would scribe books to get his way through university. Well, eventually he graduated and he was ordained a Catholic priest. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an image of where he lived. Let's have a look at this picture here of Prague. Beautiful city, isn't it? So I've stayed there. I've done two or three days holiday there. This is right at the heart of the old part of Prague. And those buildings are not dissimilar to what would have been around in the 1300s. There's castles and steeples everywhere. Some lovely medieval buildings. They're they're beautiful, actually. It's one of the places that didn't get bombed in the Second World War. Um, I've walked along that bridge, up and along that bridge several times. You can see the statues. Those statues along the bridge include Jesus, they include John Huss, and they've got statements, very strong biblical statements under them. As I'm walking around, I'm reading them all and taking pictures. Man, wonderful statements, and a lot of them came from the 1300s. The influence of someone God raised up, a prophet that was needed at the time, John Huss. I'll try and give you an idea of the kind of day in which John Huss lived. Um, not long before he was born, there was a black death. The bubonic plague had swept throughout Europe. It had killed over five years, about 40% of the population, almost. So he was born after that, not long after that. At this time, there is enormous division within the Catholic Church. There are three competing popes at this time, all fighting for power. horse has seen the corruption within the church of the day, and uh, he has read in his uh, scholarly pursuits. He's read the writings of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was a theologian from Britain. Uh, he he was he passed away when uh, Jorn Huss was just a young man. But his writings were there in Bohemia in the library. He read some of those. They were striking. He found them tremendous. Wycliffe was considered a heretic, but actually he was an evangelical. Really. Uh, well, um, as he read those writings and and started that think through what the scriptures really say. And he was passionate about reading the word of God. Around this time, he got the opportunity to be the minister of Bethlehem Chapel. And this was was a striking thing. This was an amazing place because Bethlehem Chapel was allowed to run services in the vernacular. What do I mean? Well, almost all the services in Europe at this time were ran in Latin. And so it meant the average person did not understand the preaching, they didn't understand the service, they didn't understand the singing, they didn't understand anything except a handful of the very well-educated. This chapel was allowed to run in the vernacular. So he could preach in the Czech language. They could sing in the Czech language. They could run communion in the Czech language. As you can imagine, this was extremely popular. And this is a big chapel. It's at about 2,000 people. And that place was packed several times on a Sunday and through the week. God drew the people in and they were being impacted. Most of them had heard virtually nothing from the word of God. Now they're hearing it preached. They're coming to faith in Jesus. Their lives are being turned around. Repentance is everywhere. There's this wonderful move of God in Prague. Well, Huss was a real prophet and he started to preach against some of the things that were very wrong with the church at the time. One of the things he preached against was indulgences. This is where someone could pay often a fairly substantial amount of money to the Catholic Church and they could receive an indulgence, which was a, a piece of literature and it would have a, a piece of wax on it with the Holy Roman Seal, Roman Church seal. And it might say that that person now is on their way to heaven because they've paid their indulgence. Or it might say, oh, "I've rescued my grandmother from purgatory because I've paid this indulgence." You name it, and this was mainstream at the time. As John Horse had read the scriptures now thoroughly, he realised this is not in the Bible, and he started to preach that this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this, and we're overburdening the people anyway. And uh, as as he did this, you can imagine he was going to get in trouble. And as was said, you know, this has been ordained by the Pope. The Pope at the time that was under uh, his jurisdiction was pope john the 23rd a grossly immoral man in fact he was defrocked in the end but he is demanding this be done and Huss is saying it's not biblical the final authority should not be cardinals and popes the final authority should be the holy scriptures now that was that was considered outrageous in his day also he said that the sacraments this teaching that they become literally the body and blood of jesus i don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think they're symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, not the literal body and blood of Jesus. He started to teach that. Well, you can imagine that uh, the local bishop, although originally supportive of him, he felt he was going too far. And and he he knew he was being influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe. He demanded that all the scrolls, books of John Wycliffe be burned. Well, John Hus asked his congregation, should he, should he obey what he's been commanded to do? And with great gusto, they said, no, all 2,000 of them. So he didn't. And so then he gets a decree from the Pope saying that um, unless you remove this heretic, as they were starting to call him, unless you remove him out of the city of Prague, there'll be no weddings, there'll be no baptisms. There'll be no funerals, there'll be no church services unless you get rid of this man out of the city. Any of the churches in the city, we're going to stop it all. I don't know that John should have necessarily left. He perhaps could have just ran everything from Bethlehem Chapel, but he didn't. He decided he would leave. He went to a friend's castle, and there still the masses came to that castle to hear the preached word of God. But the biggest mistake in his life, I think, was this. The time came when the Pope promised him safe conduct, safe travel, because there was to be a, a massive religious meeting over a series of, of weeks, I understand, in Constance, Germany. Jan Hus agreed to go. His friends told him not to. It'll be a trap. But John was promised he would have opportunity to present his theology. Well, you've guessed it. He didn't. In fact, they imprisoned him. All they wanted him to do was recant, initially recant, all the the teachings of John Wycliffe. And he said, I'm not here to represent John Wycliffe. I'm here to represent my own teaching. So he's thrown back in the dungeon. Two or three times I had him out again, but every time, nothing about you presenting your theology, you recant. Well, he wouldn't recant. He said, how can I deny what I've come to understand? The Bible is the final authority, not popes and cardinals. I cannot, I cannot deny this. Well, he was burnt at the stake. In Germany. Was his life wasted? And was it fair? Well, it's even been admitted by the Roman Church, by the Catholic Church, in uh, the early 1990s. To his credit, Pope John Paul felt that Jon Haus was unfairly treated. He asked for an examination of his life, and over eight years that was done. In 1999, there was a formal apology from the Pope, that the church had acted wrongly in the execution of this man. Not much good for him, you might say, though. <laughs> 600 years too late, mate. But, you know, the fact is his life was not wasted because 100 years later, the Reformation took place under the leadership of Martin Luther, and guess who Martin Luther favoured and read? The writings of Jung Huss who he'd been told was a heretic, but then when he read his writings, he thought, my goodness, he is more on the ball than any of the Catholic leaders of the church I can read at this time. Let's be honest, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Never think this is irrelevant. In the last hundred years, more people have died for Christ than at any other time in history. It still is going on, and their blood is still the seed of the church to this day. Let's have a look at a statue of the um, of guy just before I move on. Here he is in action preaching in the open air, and there's one of the many statues that is around Prague and Czechoslovakia today. Jan Hus. But we'll remember today someone far more holy and inspiring than even Jan Hus. Jesus was executed by religious leaders of his day. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees would not, would not embrace the new covenant that Jesus was introducing. As Peter declared on the day of Pentecost Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of a wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Friends, today, Juhn Hus gave a, a great example to follow. When he died, he's inspired people and it's furthered the cause of the church. But when Jesus died, he not only inspired people, and furthered the cause of the church, but he died for the sins of humanity. An extraordinary supernatural event. And when we think of how many people suffer for following Jesus, we realize Jesus has gone before us. He was also willing to suffer for the truth of God, and he was even willing to bear the sins of humanity. Now, friends, as you come forward today, I want you to take these rocks again. I want you to carry them with you. And as you come forward to the communion table, I want you to discard them in the buckets provided. As you come forward for communion today, discard your stone as a way of saying the old covenant has passed. As you take communion, you're embracing the new covenant. The concept, come forward to the communion table, drop the stone, reflective of the old covenant that's gone and embrace the truths of the new covenant. As Jesus said, Luke twenty-two nineteen. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Let's be upstanding. Carry those rocks with you. I'm going to pray for you as you prepare for communion. Father, today, as we've been reminded of the powerful reality, you have been prepared to sacrifice your life in our place, to bring in the new covenant, the covenant that we live under today, a covenant that has not in any sense belittled the truth of God, but a covenant that has brought about this wonderful sense of your love and compassion in a way that is is so extraordinary. We're reminded you would rather die than live without us. We're reminded that God, although sometimes following you, can be extraordinarily challenging. And for some, they even lose their lives in following you, but you have gone before us. You have modelled that path. Lord Jesus, today as we partake of the bread and symbol of your body, partake of the juice and symbol of your spilt blood, we embrace your new covenant today to say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, here today, we celebrate the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to connect with the almighty God because of your sacrifice. Blessed is the name of Jesus. We rejoice, we're humbled by your commitment to us, but also, Lord, we are so deeply grateful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.